0: Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast, with your hosts Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. I can avoid being seen if I wish, but to disappear entirely, that is a rare gift. Hello, this is Brian Otten, and welcome to the podcast. I'm joined by Chad Gross, recording from his underground apologetics lair. How are you doing this week, Chad? I'm doing really well,
1: and I have news from the world of NAR. You do? Um, I do. You have a special word for me. Uh, I do have a special word for you. So, as you know, and listeners know, we've recorded, what, three episodes? No, four episodes now on uh, the new apostolic reformation. And my wife told me this week that she listens to our podcast, but she has not listened to those episodes because, as you can probably appreciate, it's a little difficult to revisit that stuff sometimes. And she just wasn't ready to revisit the experiences she had in those more um, independent, charismatic churches. But uh, she started listening to them this week, and she listened to our first one with Holly and Doug, Mm -hmm. Holly Pivick and Doug Guyvett. And she really shocked me because apparently, I mean, I honestly don't remember this because it's been a while, but she said in the first podcast, Holly mentioned some names of people who um, you should listen for in the Mm -hmm. New Apostolic Reformation movement. And I guess one of the names was um, Heidi Baker. My wife told me that... Baker actually prophesied over her. And my Mm. wife said she immediately remembered. She got up, my wife got up and shared her testimony. She was like six months old in the Lord. And Heidi Baker was there as a guest speaker. And Heidi Baker called her up front and was prophesying over her. And she said that while Heidi Baker was prophesying over her, there were two ladies on both sides of her and they were nudging her, trying to encourage her to fall as she was getting prophesied over and my wife didn't understand what they were doing until she looked back over it. She also said that Mike Bickle of the um, International House of Prayer was at her church and he was also there prophesying. And so I had no idea basically how deep my wife was (laughs) into this stuff. And uh, thankfully she had a friend who was attending seminary who gave her some good books and resources that Eventually led her to see that, OK, there are some clear error here and she got out of there. But I just thought it was fascinating that she actually met these people and experienced this stuff firsthand. So I thought you and the listeners would find that kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, that that is interesting. That is weird. <laughs> when we were looking through terms and stuff in the previous podcast, the NAR buzzwords, we called that one in episode mm-hmm. 99, there was a couple of terms that came up and I was like, oh, I forgot that term. And I didn't realize, you know, it was one of these ones that I was in use and I just didn't realize that it was like actually an sure. AR specific term. I just thought it was like part of the church that I was at. But no, it was it was specifically a term that was from that movement. And that's wow. the odd thing about some of these terms is that if someone came in from out of had no background
1: of it and they started hearing these words, they're like, where are these in the Bible? You know, wh- where is this coming from? I have been listening to that podcast you recommended on um, straight white American Jesus. Yes. The charismatic revival fury, the new Apostolic reformation. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. I do have to say that I'm on part four and a few things that strike me about it. Is first of all, it's it's very fair-minded. So even though the people doing the podcast are, I can't tell where their beliefs are. Actually, uh, they're they're very fair to separate these new apostolic reformation people from more mainstream evangelicals. Uh, some that they name, such as you know James Dobson and Franklin Graham and people like that. So I appreciate the fact that they're going out of their way to say, look, this isn't the whole of evangelicalism. Secondly, though, I really was challenged by the idea that these NAR prophets and apostles are not just emotional, emotionally driven kind of crazy people. Uh, these people in a lot of instances, I think there are those, but in a lot of instances, these people are very intelligent. They're very well planned. They're very calculated and they know exactly what they're doing. And so to me, that makes it almost all the more concerning because they do have a plan. They are intelligent and they are calculated in what they're doing. And so that was a real paradigm shift for me.
0: Yeah, I agree. There's, there's emotion within the movement and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but doesn't therefore mean that this is an emotional movement and is based on emotion. I think it's just based on wrong understanding or wrong interpretation of, of the scriptures. I mean, at least it should be questioned. Listen to that podcast can be helpful just to see where it came from, because I think when you understand the origin of it and how it came about, then it even helps a little bit more in just judging the teachings of the movement and maybe seeing how things can snowball.
1: I think if you would have asked me before we started exploring the New Apostolic Reformation and interviewing Holly and Doug and reading their work and things, you know, what do you think of people like, say, a Kenneth Copeland? I would have said to you, the guy's crazy period. He's a nut. And that would have been, but I, I think I'm learning that I'm a little naive in in saying that there's a little bit more to it than that. Okay. Well, we'll link to that podcast
0: and show notes. And uh, again, so people can go back and check it out if they want to. We did get an email in response to something I said on the NIR Buzzwords podcast. And as we promise, if people use a Ghostbusters quote, we guarantee to read their email on the air. It's quite lengthy, so I'm not going to quote it all, but uh, it's basically to me. He loves our podcast and he gives us a nice Ghostbusters quote. You know, you don't act like a scientist. So, uh, You're more like a game
1: show host.
0: He just wanted to challenge my comments about where I, quote, mockingly say regarding the NAR buzzwords, the city of angels, there is no accident. It was called that. And a little bit of context. We were talking about territorial spirits and how one of the teachings within the new apostolic reformation is that you have to have apostolic strategies or maybe prophetic insights in how to bind the strong man in your city and the over different territories there are territorial spirits. These are like princes of the city or like the queen of heaven or, you know, they would give them different names. And I gave uh, various things that I had heard people say within the NAR movement, like, oh, well, you know, it's no accident that Los Angeles is called the city of angels. And the people within the movement would have said that To say justify part of their thinking or justifying their ideas that there are territorial spirits. So they would say, well, the city of angels is one of the things they would point to. In the email that I got, our listener gave me way more quotes than can be read through on the email, but basically about the history of Los Angeles and how it was discovered and transformed because of explorers and Christians, you know, a lot of helpful things about it, why it's called the City of Angels from a historical perspective, which I don't disagree with anything uh, within the email (laughs) other than the fact that I'm not making the case (laughs) that it's not really called the city of angels for a reason i'm just saying that nar people will say that sort of thing to justify their teaching of mm. territorial spirits so i think maybe that was just a misunderstanding of why i was saying that but uh yeah there was a huge rich history of why it's called the city of angels which Our listener included a lot of good links and stuff. So I hope that clarifies. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sending that over. And I'll shoot you an email during this week when I have a chance. Right. And basically, you're just trying to say, well, that's what I heard. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of podcasts, I wanted to give a plug for a podcast that I've been listening to. Doug Groteis has got his podcast, which he's started uh, recording. So there's a number of episodes that have dropped already. He calls it the Truth Tribe podcast. You can find that over at lifeaudio.com. Truth Tribe with Douglas Groteis. I'll leave the link in the show notes. for So check it out if you're looking for more good content. That's one that I would like to recommend. Excellent. So Chad, what do we got today? What are we going to sink our teeth into today?
1: Oh, yeah. So I had the opportunity at a local youth group to do an atheist role play. And what I did... And this was at the request of the youth leader, Andy Ziegler. What I did is I came in and I presented as an atheist, the three arguments that I myself find to be the strongest from the atheist perspective. Now, on the onset, I want to say that if there is a skeptic or an atheist or whatever Uh, label you would like to carry listening to this and you would say, well, you left out this argument and that's a stronger argument. What I'm trying to say is, is when I assess atheist arguments as a theist, a Christian theist, I find myself thinking that if I were an atheist, these are the arguments that I would find most convincing. And as we've said before on the podcast, Brian, different people find different arguments convincing and so if you think i left an argument out that is more potent it wasn't because i was trying to present any kind of weak atheism or a straw man it was just because i can only honestly assess the arguments and present the ones i find the most powerful or the most potent that doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with me and i'm not trying to say all atheists agree that these three arguments are the most potent. So I just right. want to make that clear to to kind of remove that stumbling block that could be there for somebody. So what I thought would be fun today is for me to present kind of a nutshell version of the argument, provide maybe a few examples and a syllogism, and then for you and I to just talk about what we think of the arguments. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do Feel like it's important to say that a lot of times these arguments are addressed from the perspective of a generic theism. Uh, so, for example, that you know, just a personal God exists, and it's important to know that Brian and I are advocates of addressing these arguments from a biblical Christianity perspective. And so we will be addressing them with all the tools of biblical Christianity because we believe things like, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? Is the New Testament reliable? We believe all of those things are evidentially justifiable. And so we're going to be using all of those tools as we assess the arguments. And so that's our approach and our perspective. All right. So what I did is... And, and again, I, I'm not going to do this just for the sake of the listener, but what I did is I presented this in a story form because I always think that arguments are can be more potent in, in a uh, story format. I, I think that's one of the reasons Jesus used parables, right? It's because they're very memorable and they relate to people. And so I really, for the first one, it was the argument of divine hiddenness. And when I presented the argument from Divine Hiddenness, I I will freely give credit to uh, Cosmic Skeptic, a.k.a. Alex O'Connor. I have always found his presentation of the argument to be the most emotionally challenging and intellectually as well. But I think academically, the person who presents this argument most potently would be J.L. Schellenberg in his book, The Hiddenness Argument. I kind of have a conglomeration of both of those approaches in the way that I presented the argument. And also, I I feel like I know I'm offering a lot of caveats here, but I want to make sure that people see that I went out of my way to be to be fair and to present these arguments in a way that if an atheist were sitting in the front row of that youth group. The day I presented, I wanted them to be able to walk out and say, yeah, you know, I don't agree with his conclusions, but he presented those arguments fairly. And so, but at the same time, please keep in mind that I wasn't presenting to a group of academics. I was presenting to a group of teenagers. And so I did take that into account as well. However, I will say that this group of teenagers was quite astute and engaged and intelligent. So, so the way I presented the argument is, is that Let us imagine that there is an atheist, and again, this comes a lot from Mr. O'Connor. There is an atheist who, who is not resisting God. He sincerely wants to know that God exists. He wants to have a relationship with God. He's reading the Bible. He is fellowshipping with other Christians. He's reading early Christian literature. He's reading Christian apologetics. He's trying as much as he can to engage in living and studying the Christian life, but yet he just can't accept or grasp or sense the presence of God. And the reason I'm using various words here is because it depends on the case, of course. They're not all one size fits all. And so this is what you'll often hear people call a non-resistant non-believer. So this is, they claim that this isn't somebody who's rebelling against God, who who wants to be an atheist, who wants to remain in their sin. This is some of the thing language you'll hear. But this is somebody who actually wants to know God, but just can't find him because he appears to be hidden from them. And so the syllogism, And this is based on Schellenberg's work, but it's shortened because, again, I was trying to be succinct, but then still stay true to the argument, is this. Premise one, God's existence entails that there would never be any non-resistant non-believers. Premise two, there are some non-resistant unbelievers. Premise three, therefore, God does not exist. And to be fair, you could make this, that conclusion, maybe a little more modest and one could say, therefore, it is unlikely that God exists. It depends on how strong you want to make the argument. So I do want to say that just in the entrance, uh, in the interest of being fair. So, Brian, what do you, do you have any thoughts or I know the hiddenness argument has been one of interest for you? Well, first, I would just want to make sure
0: I properly understood it. So. This comes from the perspective of the atheist who believes that God does not exist, who is, from their point of view, sincerely seeking God by doing various things um, to try to Mm -hmm. find him. Um, They're Mm -hmm. reading the scriptures, they're studying theology, they're looking at the arguments for the existence of God, Um, maybe they're praying saying prayers or going to prayer meetings or church services or hanging around with christian friends or things like that in order to try to put themselves in the place of finding god Uh, that hasn't happened for them and so their reasoning goes something like i'm not resistant but if god exists he is the kind of god who would not allow there to be non-resistant non-belief but i'm a non-resistant non-believer And he's not showing himself. Therefore, it's more likely that that God does not exist. Now, I've kind of adjusted that a bit, but I think what we're trying to capture is this idea rather than one special particular wording. Does that
1: capture it? No, I think that's a really fair um, assessment. The only thing I might, I don't even know if it's fair to say add, maybe clarify, Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. to say that. They're, they're assessing this based on what are classically known as God's attributes. Right. And I probably mm-hmm. should have mentioned that. And, and honestly, I think I did when I presented it, but oh, again, okay. I was trying to be succinct in the sense that they see God is all powerful, all loving, mm-hmm. all knowing. And so if God is all those things, the, the, you know, the God of theism, then he obviously would want to have a relationship with me. He would have the ability to reveal himself to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important caveat to kind of add on there, if you will. Mm-hmm. But no, I think the way you characterize it is is fair It's and put mm-hmm. well. Adding the physical um, accoutrement,
0: <laughs> the accoutrements <laughs> like, uh, you know, here, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. Rather than just like a philosophical, you know, if there is a loving God who wants everyone to be saved, he would therefore reveal, you know, putting it in a syllogism alone. Uh, Uh, is is not as strong as the additional stuff where Mm -hmm. one is seeking God. They're trying to do these things and it isn't working for them. Mm -hmm. God doesn't uh, seem to be revealing himself. And so there is that emotional punch of, hey, the list, the Christian uh, who's hearing this is basically the atheist is kind of taking all the suggestions that the Christian had in mind for Suggesting to them and saying, I've done everything that you can possibly uh, suggest that I know you want to suggest for me to do. I've prayed. I've read the Bible. I've done this. I've done that. I've gone to church. So I think that that makes it stronger when there's that story time element, the emotional impact added to it. So when you get the philosophical aspect of, you know, classifying this God uh, um, who wants people to believe and it's in his power to make them believe or reveal himself and it's not happening and the person's doing the stuff on top of that i think that makes it powerful now the thing that i think the atheist can add to it is this um what i've heard saying well wouldn't you say god is like a loving father and you're a loving father you have a child right it's in your power as a father to reveal yourself to your child but you're not, and then your child is going to suffer an eternal torment, even though they wanted you to reveal yourself to them. So how loving is that? That that God doesn't exist. So I think those sort of things all like rolled together on the face of it can be pretty emotionally powerful. And if I think, you know, when you haven't heard those sort of arguments or objections before, um, it could leave you thinking, boy, that that is, that is strong, you know, um, I don't know how to respond to that.
1: You know, Yeah, well, and I think, too, that one of the reasons that this argument, to me, appears potent is because, also, there are times in the life of a Christian, and I know I've experienced this before, where God seems hidden or silent to me. And so, to me, I also have this aspect of, I can see the intellectual and emotional oomph of the argument, for lack of a better way of putting it, but at the same time, I can also sympathize with the person because I myself have experienced what Christians have classically called the silence of God, if you will. So, of course, then the the question comes: is how do we how do we best address it? Right? Uh, is this a death blow to biblical Christianity?
0: Did you ask the students or the youth group that you were with to ask questions about it, or what did they do to? sort of addressed your
1: arguments yeah they had they had Q a time and the one the one there was one kid in the the crowd that said he said that my expectations were wrong so in other words I was doing all these things and I was expecting God to respond to me in a certain way and just because God was not responding in the way that I had predetermined he needed to uh therefore God didn't exist. And his point was, is that God could have very well had good reasons for not responding in my time hmm. and that that did not mean that he was not going to respond or that he wasn't responding. And I just wasn't perceiving it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a thoughtful response for our youth group kid. Yeah, I thought it was as well. I thought it was as well. So, Brian, a couple of ways that I think about this argument after I hope you know listeners can agree that we've steel manned it because that was a, that's our desire for all three of the arguments that we're going to attempt to address is, is first of all, to ask the question, do, do such people really exist now before the person listening who might not be a believer, here's, you know, here's this and, uh, turns off the podcast, just hear us out here. But first of all, what I mean by that is, is I, I don't mean to suggest that the person who is saying I'm seeking God and I'm not hearing from him believes they're sincere but that's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm saying is, is scripture tells us some things about people who uh, don't believe. And I'm particularly here. I'm thinking of uh, the book of Romans and uh, it tells us that people know the truth about God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So particularly here. I'm thinking about um, chapter one uh, verses 18 through 21. Now, that suppression does not mean that they have absolute 100% knowledge that God exists and they're lying in their bed at night saying, well, I know God exists, but I'm going to pretend he doesn't. Ha <laughs> That's not what I mean. It just simply means that we're very good at deceiving ourselves because we are in a, a sinful state and that I believe that people can honestly convince themselves that uh, for periods of time that, that God does not exist and that God ultimately will give them over to that, even though he is reaching out to them with his grace. And I, I think that I have had evidence of this in my own life. I know that once I became a Christian, I was able to look back and see ways that I was deceiving myself, but I did not know that I was doing that And I think a really good explanation of this, and I encourage listeners to check it out, is a recent podcast that Frank Turek did with uh, he had Michael Jones on. It was a little bonus episode on divine hiddenness. And Jones talks about how studies have shown that we are not just reasoning machines. In other words, it's not just we put the input in and people go, oh, that's true. And they accept it, that there are a lot more factors that we're not even aware of that affect uh, what we believe and why we believe it. and so. I think we should be a bit more skeptical as to whether or not such people exist, these completely open, non-resistant unbelievers. And now I believe God can overcome those barriers, which is part of my res- my next part of the response. But I think that we need to be a little bit more skeptical about uh, whether or not a pure, non-resistant unbeliever does indeed exist. And we ta- to Brian, I think we talked a little bit about this with Doug GreTice in our podcast with him.
0: When, regarding the bit where you say, you know, are are they truly non-resistant? I think about myself and I'm a believer, but I am resistant. Right. And, you know what I mean? Uh, there is elements in me where. And
1: still susceptible to
0: self-deception in certain areas. Yeah. Um, I know I've, I can point to, in my, I can look in, in my past experience in my, for myself and say, well, I was deceiving myself in such and such a situation. Uh, And I can look back and I can see that it was because of personal motivation, what I wanted to be the case or didn't want to be the case. Mm -hmm. I know that there are areas, if God pushes on me, uh, um, certain areas that can be, tend to be idols in my life, I will be uncomfortable with that. uh, And I will more likely than not, maybe be resistant to that. So when it comes to Jesus being Lord, I think that there's this aspect of, okay, he's in charge. I don't think that there's anyone who's like, sure, take it all, Lord. No resistance here. You know what I mean? Uh, that's fair. There's this thing like, yeah, I'm willing to believe, but uh, it's going to be hard letting go of certain things. You know, mm-hmm. I have more to say, but that's, those are
1: a couple initial thoughts. Yeah. I think that definitely complements what I've shared so far. And then the second thought I had was too, is that. We really have to take into account here God's time. So, for example, let's take Alex O'Connor, right? The example of Alex O'Connor, because I think he lays out this argument beautifully. So, Alex, let's say Alex is absolutely correct in everything he says, that he's seeking God. He's spending, he's lived with Christians. He's read the early church. He's read apologetics. He's read philosophy. You know, he's, to the best of his ability, he's seeking God, right? But nowhere in the Bible does it say, if you seek me um, with all your heart, you'll know me within this time frame. And just for rhetorical
0: effect, what if I said, what if I was making the case that God was hidden from me? He wasn't revealing himself to me. What if I also added to that? I spent 20 years at a seminary, you you know, Mm. how many personal sacrifices can I add to the list? You know? Hmm. Do you know what I'm getting
1: at there? Sure. i just talking. The, yeah, talking yeah it out. I do. Like, no, no, no. I think what I think what you're saying is, is it's almost like you're trying to add to your ledger of how many things you've done to to seek God. But it, it, is it possible that you're adding to that in the sense that you want to add to it so you can kind of wear that those badges of look at all the things I've done? Were this? Sound, no?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this sounds dumb and completely unrelated but what if you said, I've run six marathons and God still hasn't revealed himself to me? Mm. You'd say, well, that's stupid. Marathon has nothing to do with it. Yeah, exactly my point. You worked really hard and maybe the thing you were doing has nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? Mm, I do. So,
1: Which relates to my fourth point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Go yeah. ahead. No, no, no. I'm just saying, no, that's that's a great point. I And, and so here's what I think. I think that. What, what is Alex doing right now? Alex is accumulating a following. Alex is growing in influence, right? So it's possible that God is waiting to, quote unquote, reveal himself to Alex so that Alex's impact will even be even more potent than it would be if God revealed him to him right now. So in other words, that's just a possibility. I'm not trying to say whether it's even viable or not. My point is, is that we don't know God's purposes. We don't know his time. So just because God hasn't revealed himself to someone yet doesn't mean he's not going to.
0: Mm -hmm. A few things come to mind, too, is that this idea of um, revealing himself. One thing I would want to ask whoever the person specific person would be is, what are you expecting? Back to what the youth group kid was saying. What are your expectations? Uh, all right. Let's say you went to seminary for four years because you wanted to see if God was real. Uh, or if you read all the New Testament twice over and you took classes and you learned Greek. What what if you did all these things? What's the expectation? I, I want to know what's the expectation because, you know, I can do things as a Christian. I can study and do things. What sort of experience am I expecting to get from that? Because, you know i could study a lot and think well god why aren't you promoting me in ministry you know what i mean mm. or why aren't you doing such and such for it's almost like if i do this god if he's there he's obligated to do something reciprocate in some way like i'm going to put i'm going to rub the the genie bottle and it's supposed to the genie's supposed to pop out or i'm i'm put the coin in and he has to respond he didn't respond Therefore, he must not be there because that's the way it's supposed to work. So I'm wondering, what is the expectation? I mean, what experience are, is the person looking for? A feeling? Uh, a sense of knowing? Um, or an appearance? A voice? You know, uh, what would satisfy that? Because it's kind of like unfalsifiable. Well, he hasn't showed himself to me yet. You know, Burning bush? You know, what are we looking for? I, I guess I would want to clarify that. And I'm not... I get it that I could maybe sound a little mocking or dismissing. I'm not dismissing it. I'm just really would want to clarify that because it's not clear yet. I mean, that would really have to be clear. Like what equation are you operating from? What would satisfy the person,
1: you know? No, I guess. No. And that leads like perfectly seriously into the next point of kind of my response to this is because one of the things I challenge the youth group with is that A lot of times when I listen to people who present the divine hiddenness argument in the way that I've presented it, it, you're absolutely right. They present it in a way of like, God has not revealed himself to me. And the question does boil down to, well, what what do you mean by that in the sense of reveal? Do you, do you mean like a voice? Do you mean um, a burning bush? Do you mean a burning in the bosom? Do you, what do you mean, right? And so, but then I think to myself about someone like Jonathan McClatchy, right, who we've had on the podcast a couple times. Jonathan says, frankly, I've never had an emotional experience with God. Never had that. He's never experienced God in that way. Those are his own words. But yet he believes based upon the evidence. He believes based upon the evidence, and he trusts in God's existence and Christ's forgiveness based upon that, and he walks with Christ daily. And so my point is, is sometimes if you listen to these people, and I'm not saying all of them, but sometimes when you listen to some of these people that present the divine hiddenness argument, they do do it in such a way of... I've never had this emotional experience. That's what they're equating the revealing to. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think that we need to be really careful to not be, as you said, be expecting this emotional experience, especially if if there are people who think, yeah, there's really good evidence for the existence of God. But yet I've never had this emotional experience. Well, you, you may never have that emotional experience. Maybe you're not wired that way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you need to act on the evidence and and not hang around and wait on this emotional experience because there's no reason to think that everybody has to have it. And I think Jonathan is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. If I
0: were an atheist arguing from this perspective and I was expecting uh, firsthand experience, then I for me, I would be putting myself, I would think, in a position where I can't criticize Christians for not having evidence external proofs or arguments because i'm basically saying that yeah all you do need is a is a first hand experience mm. but from from an atheist perspective though i mean i wouldn't want to do that because i don't think you can rely on your own experience because you could say no you're deceived so why put so much weight on god revealing himself in a certain way when you can point to other christians people who are christians who say they've had experience and you're like no i don't buy it you know yeah i, I guess it just it puts too much weight on ex, on experience which which we all know can be falsified or or can
1: even be deceptive
0: yeah you're i mean i i i've, I've had experiences and then like in the moment i think wow it's really strong and uh there's no doubt about it and then later you, you kind of go back and you second guess that so i would maybe want to encourage the atheist seeker saying, well, you know, maybe experience is not
1: what you're you're looking for. In, in some people who are tripping over this argument, it's important to be just to be reminded that we need to be skeptical of um, whether or not such people exist. And we need to have a little bit more respect for the fact that we're very good at uh, deceiving ourselves or resisting conclusions that we ourselves are not necessarily leaning toward Secondly, we—if you are listening and you're still seeking God—well, there's no obligation. He's under no obligation to um, reveal or show himself to you, or uh, you know, in in a certain amount of time. And so, I continue. I encourage you to continue to seek Him. And then, finally, I would say that don't wait on this emotional experience, especially if you think the weight of the evidence is in uh, ways on the side of. Uh, biblical theism because jesus says if you do if you act on the words he says this is john seven seventeen the chad paraphrase if you act on the things that he says you will know whether or not these things are from god and so there is this idea that you can live this life and then it it itself can act as a confirmation and then i think finally the last thing i'll say is this is important that People remember that Clay Jones addressed this too in our recent podcast with him. That it's not God's ultimate desire that everybody ha- assent to intellectual belief in Him. It's His desire to have relationship with us. And as William Lane Craig argues, it may just be that this is the best possible world in which people can um, find God who are seeking Him and have relationship with Him. But then there, if people don't want a relationship with Him, they there is reason to deny. And so I think those are some reasons why to think that that argument isn't as potent as it appears on the surface. Good way to sum it up. Great stuff, Chad. I think that'll wrap it up for this week's podcast.
0: Now, we're going to continue on the two other arguments from the atheist perspective. What what are those we're going to what are we going to look at next week?
1: Next week we're going to look at the problem of massive theological disagreement. And just to give a little teaser, that is not just the idea that, oh, there's all these religions and we can't know which one is true. Uh, There's a lot more to it than that. I actually think that version of the argument is really weak. And then the second argument we're going to be looking at is the problem of useless suffering, or perhaps another way to say it is innocent suffering. The type of suffering that, from our perspective, just seems completely useless. There can't be a purpose for it. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, I do want to
0: point people to some resources in the show notes. I'll link to a couple resources on hiddenness that I think are are cool. Um, One, Uh, author that's most affected my thinking about the subject is uh, a guy named paul moser so uh, i'll link to a couple books by him and uh, any other resources we have on the the hiddenness argument that we've only briefly touched on it we haven't given like a full academic unpacked response to it um, but just sort of teased a few things to look at we could definitely talk about that one more but that's all we have for this week thanks for listening Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of Apologetics resources at Apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's Apologetics stuff over at Truth Bomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening. Thank you